I'm Matthew Moore, and you're listening to In His Name, the Deluxe Edition. In my second semester of grad school, I was properly introduced to Dr. Angie Maxwell. I had heard about her book, The Long Southern Strategy, and knew that it would provide the political history that would help on the GOP side of my thesis research. It was such a delight to talk with Dr. Maxwell and really dive deep into the history of conservative politics and Southern politics with her. We go all the way back to Abraham Lincoln in this conversation. All right, here's my interview with Angie Maxwell. Uh, If you don't mind, will you start by giving me your name and your title, and then we'll get going from there? Yes. um, So my name is Angie Maxwell. I am the Diane D. Blair Professor of Southern Studies and Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Arkansas. And can you give me a little bit of background on your research? What got you interested in this field, and, and how long have you been researching and talking about this kind of stuff? Sure. So officially, I started on you know, tenure track at the U of A in 2010, so a decade. Um, But my dissertation in graduate school was on similar subject on kind of the Southern inferiority complex. And so I guess you could really say, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, I am interested in interdisciplinary work, which I think is important for anytime you're going to talk about a region. And so I've been kind of playing around in the, you know, crossroads of Southern history and Southern politics for a while and now have gone um, more into kind of some of the quantitative work and building a bridge between data analysis and kind of cultural studies, which is kind of somewhat new turf. Um, And and so that Uh, made me kind of really get interested in how the South transformed from being solidly Democratic um, blue, Democratic Party, to pretty solidly red, um, you know, over the course of about 50 years in the second half of the 20th century, kind of in forward. Um, And and that that I thought it was an incomplete story um, that we had. And so that's what kind of my most recent research has been on. Um, let's start back a, a few a few decades ago. Uh, arguably, the most famous Republican, or at least the most talked about Republican, is President Abraham Lincoln. Um, what did it look like to be a capital R Republican prior to the Civil War? Oh, sure. Okay, so the Republican Party starts in 1854 officially, and so it doesn't really run anyone until you know, for the presidency until 1860. And it starts as a specifically anti-slavery party, specifically. So at that point, prior to that, you really had um, Democrats, which were in the North and the South, um, and some kind of in rural areas, like were, you know, kind of the party of Andrew Jackson. And then what was left on the other side was the Whigs that were slowly deteriorating. And they basically were the anti-Andrew Jackson party. They kind of did not like the masses. They saw him as from the masses. And, um, and so it was kind of based on like 
class a little bit more and just a uh, New England kind of old school versus these kind of, you know, Southern and frontier kind of Democrats. And then it slowly starts to slavery becomes the issue, right? Is it going to expand in new territories, which is a fight constantly? Is the slave trade going to, or, or the importation of new slaves going to be, um, you know, reestablished because they were worried about supply, you know, and air quotes, supply of that labor? Would slavery be banned altogether, right? And because they'd seen it happen in some other countries. And so it becomes this like, constant battle every election cycle, every time a territory is coming in to United States. And because of that, it starts to, you know, the Democratic Party starts to really be Southern focused and the Republican Party, um, this new anti-slavery Republican Party starts picking up all this, a lot of the states where slavery, you know, didn't exist or wasn't allowed. Um, and so by 1860, you see a real regional divide. Um, now, the Republican Party, by saying it's founded as an anti-slavery party, was, and there were true believer abolitionists, hardcore, absolutely humanitarians, right, human rights for slaves. There were people who thought that, you know, economically it was unfair the South had unpaid labor as they were having to pay wages, there were people who were just sick of this being the only issue and that everything was negotiated on and kind of this Southern block that kind of nothing could get done. There were a lot of reasons, um, some of which were very, you know, um, human rights oriented and others were not so focused on that, but more focused on this is, this makes us look bad internationally, unsustainable. And that was the Republican party kind of, held all of those, you know, people in its camp. Yeah. So the Civil War happens. So from 1861 to 1933, this is something I didn't realize. And of course, you know this, but for 72 years, there were just two presidents who were not Republicans in this post-Civil War, this Reconstruction era time leading from 1861 and the start of the Civil War up to 1933, where Franklin D. Roosevelt becomes president. How did this domination from the Republican Party affect America in the Reconstruction era? Okay. It's a great question. A lot of people don't realize that. Now, in the beginning of that period of time, part of it was that not all the Southern states had been readmitted to the Union, right? So actually, Democratic Party is decimated, right? As the, whether it was Andrew Johnson's plan for reconstruction or then, you know, the radical Republicans, that was what they were called, um, and Congress's plan for reconstruction, you know, the, the standards by which states from the South were readmitted and who was disenfranchised, like Confederate officers, you know, different um, voting constituents like that, it really changed the electorate and it changed whether the state even had senators or congressmen for a while, right? Now, eventually, when the Southern states were readmitted, because so many people were disenfranchised, the Democratic Party was, you know, just in shambles, right? And the Republican Party, um, which after the 15th Amendment allowed free 
blacks, males, you know, to vote um, and had troops in the South that were protecting that vote. Um, you know, Republic, you had Republican dominance in the South for a couple of cycles, right? And even at the state level, I mean, and not just any Republicans, but black Republicans. So black Republicans were in control of the South Carolina legislature, both Senator United States senators from Mississippi or, you know, African-American Republicans. You had this period of time when that dominated throughout the whole country. After Reconstruction ends and the Republican um, you know, radical Republicans kind of pull the troop, federal troops out of the South, you see a re-grab of power by those what were called Redeemer Democrats. Um, and they take back over and very much lock down Democratic control in the region, right? But they, they kind of lose everyone else, so to speak. So it becomes that the South is this democratic block, but it's, and it's a serious block, but it's, it still has to have a little bit from beyond its region to get it to a majority, right? In like an electoral college. And the, the Republicans did something what we call waving the bloody shirt, which is the phrase which meant they kept reinvoking the war to go it was senseless, useless, look at the loss of life, you know, and that would inspire people to continue to kind of vote Republican, which is understandable, right? But so there's a dominance there. And then after that, I just think the, you know, Democrats and Confederacy were just so inextricably linked up until really the 19 teens right, with Woodrow Wilson, um, and people just kind of couldn't break it apart. So again, it'd be a block, but it was not enough without some other states to put a Democrat in the White House. In your book, The Long Southern Strategy, you dedicate a whole section of your book to what you call politics in the pulpit. Um, as you note, white evangelicals, and specifically you talk a lot about Southern Baptist Convention, didn't stumble into politics. Um, I like that I like that phrasing there. Um, where is the best place to start with the intersection of white evangelicals and Republican politics, do you think? Well, I would uh, first I would start with white evangelicals and democratic politics before the South flips. So in my first book, I spend a great, great deal of time on the Scopes trial of 1925, talking about what the public, specifically what the public criticism of the region did, right? So the whole world watched this little trial over the teaching of evolution, you know, over 11 days in this tiny little town in Tennessee. And literally it was on the front page of every international newspaper. We laid telegraph wire to Hong Kong to cover the trial live. Like it was a, it was an event like, you know, we'd never had before in terms of media. And just, and, just as a reminder, mostly for myself, the Scopes trial is, is this trial that happens essentially talking about whether or not evolution can be taught in public schools. Is that right? Right. Yes, the state of Tennessee had banned the teaching of evolution in the Butler Act earlier in that year, 1925. And then the ACLU wanted a test case. And so there was a kind of a group of 
leaders in a little town in Dayton, Tennessee, Ray County, Tennessee, who were struggling financially. The town had been losing population and decided this would be a good publicity event. And their football coach um, taught science and he was teaching Hunter's Civic Biology, the addition that actually had evolution in it. We don't even know if he actually taught those pages, but he was teaching a book that had it in there. And so they decided they'd be the test case. And then it blew up because William Jennings Bryan, who was a three-time a perennial presidential candidate, candidate. <laughs> and the former secretary of state under Woodrow Wilson, decided had gotten onto the anti-evolution movement late in his career, um, decided he's going to go prosecute the case. And Clarence Darrow, the most famous defense attorney in the United States, at the time decides he's going to go represent scopes. And so all eyes on this area. And it was a moment where it was like religion and science were, I mean, it was just one of those moments. And, but the, the, the criticism of the region as being so fundamentalist and backwards, like Dayton, Tennessee actually wasn't like that, but a whole lot of fundamentalists um, came to Dayton, Tennessee. Um, and the media covered kind of the most, some of the most extreme, you know, small groups that were there as emblematic of the region. And what happened is it kind of did transform the region because the criticism made people very defensive. So we see after the trial, William Jennings Bryan College um, come into being within five years and a whole network of private religious colleges that spring from that. And so the point is, is instead of trying to change the public sphere, these religious, you know, um, fundamentalists kind of went underground and kind of created their own private space of colleges, radio stations, which turns into television stations and bookstores and like a whole kind of subculture. And they kind of kept out of things politically for a little while. It was like they got burned by that. And it was like, let's build our own kind of world. I mean, I'm really simplifying here. Yeah, yeah. But in, in the 1950s, the National Evangelical you know, Association, the NEA, starts really trying to reach evangelicals about anti-communism. And they do a little bit there. And then there's an effort with, you know, prayer in school and then the Equal Rights Amendment and Roe v. Wade, and like slowly there was Republican outreach to evangelicals saying, you know, rather than concern yourself, we know you don't concern yourself with worldly affairs, so to speak, right? Um, but if you don't vote, who will, right? And so they re-engage, they make a real outreach to these ministers. Um, and so it's not an overnight thing. It's kind of an, they got the evangelicals and fundamentalists got organized in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And then slowly there's little kind of outreaches in the 50s. And then in, and then it really hit a little bit in the 60s, really hits in the 70s. And Republicans made that effort because they were specifically trying to target Southern white voters. They needed a new path to the Electoral College majority, and they thought breaking up that Southern Democratic bloc 
would be their only hope. It opened up all kinds of other options to get to 270. And so it's not that there was something unique necessarily about Southern evangelicals. It's just that they were Southern white evangelicals were the target audience because of where they lived and they lived in there in such high concentrations or numbers. What impact you talked a little bit about Christian media. It it started almost underground and wasn't really being produced on a mass national level. By the time we get to the the 60s and especially the 70s, we see folks like uh, Tim LaHaye. We see guys like Jerry Falwell, uh, Pat Robertson. These folks have a national recognition, uh, whether it's from television or from radio. What what sort of impact does Christian media play in this time leading up to the moral majority? I mean, huge. It's a it's the front runner for, you know, political media. I mean, it's the Christian media comes before you get, you know, right wing political media or left wing political media. Right. It becomes. But again, it's because it decided to separate off and say, we're not going to have just like a radio station that sometimes has some messages about religion. It's going to be literally its own station, and that's its sole purpose. And it actually starts to mimic secular culture with just like a little taint. So you can basically live like a life like everyone else, but you're shopping at Christian-owned bookstores, Christian clothing stores, listening to Christian radio that sounds like rock music, you know? So it was, but it's all part of kind of a subworld um, that then can repeat some of the same messages and can really kind of reach and organize people. And it spreads beyond the South. You know, there's a huge effort. SBC moves to Orange County, California, you know, and really expands. And then the television, the money that comes in and the networks that get built, you know, so much so that, you know, fundamentalist Christians decide to run their own presidential candidates in Pat Robinson. They think they're that powerful at that point. And they were a little bit disappointed in Reagan. He hadn't, he'd spoken, I mean, he'd said some things they liked, but he didn't do enough that they liked. But then they realized very quickly you know, they were not that big. They couldn't, they couldn't win a primary, you know? Um, And so that's when they became honestly really political. I I say their leadership becomes what we call politicos. So rather than just looking for like as true believers, right. For which candidate they feel was kind of the most like them, they become really strategic political interest group going, this is what we misunderstand all the time. Didn't matter. It's a bonus if the candidate they support believes what they believe, but it's not necessary. It's only necessary. They do what these evangelicals want them to do politically. And I'm I'm not saying that as a criticism because that's what lobbying groups do. And that's what an interest group does. It says we support, we're going to support you, not just because you agree with us, but because there are action steps you you are going to take that will benefit us. I mean, that's what every kind of lobbying group does. But it's a real shift within evangelicals from just trying to plug in and support someone they think has their values to 
being kind of very politically astute um, and being kind of a major player. And, and so there's a, it's not just the Republican party pulling at them. There was a, there was a, it was, you know, action from both Republicans to evangelicals and evangelicals to Republicans. Hmm. Um, is there any sort of, um, is there any sort of like reckoning after John F. Kennedy becomes president in 1960, first Catholic president? Is there any sort of pushback from evangelicals or conservatives? The, the answer may be no. Yeah, that's a great question. So there is a little bit, but it's a really weird. And it was, it was already building. So in the 1950s, you know, conservative Republicans, which were mid, mostly Midwestern, right, conservative, religious Republicans, they really supported, Ta- you know, Robert Taft of Ohio to be the presidential nominee, and Eisenhower wins instead. And they, f- and Taft was leading, 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 and Eisenhower wins it at the convention. And some, they felt very much like these elites in the Republican Party, like the New England, New York, you know, Republic you know, manipulated the situation and they feel very frustrated, like they're not heard. And so this conservative wing of the Republican Party starts trying to figure out how to kind of fight back within their own party. They are religious. They're very anti-communist. There's a little bit of anti-labor. The late, you know, they don't like labor unions. It's, It's kind of strange bedfellows. And one thing they start looking at is even though Southern states went Democrat, they still had delegates to the Republican National Convention. Every state does. Right. And so they started trying to think about how do we win? Like, can we get some of those guys? Can we build a bridge with some of these Southern Republicans? And we see that there are Southern Democrats that are really upset with the National Party as it's moving to the left. What if some of them became Republicans? What if we, you know, reached out to some? And so there was a really serious effort. There was even talk by some Republican strategists that were hinting at maybe trying to get Faubus, Orville Faubus, to join the Republican Party and potentially put him up as a presidential candidate um, after Little Rock Central, because they're thinking the angst that these white Southerners feel over integration, maybe we can marry that with our conservatism on religious values and anti-labor unions and anti-communism, like maybe we can build this bridge. But then Barry Goldwater becomes, kind of start to raise in prominence. And so in the early 60s, after Kennedy's elected, they're already looking at Goldwater. They, they They almost want to nominate him in 60, but he wouldn't do it. And so there is a like, oh, here's Kennedy, a Catholic, but it was it was more that Kennedy was echoing some pro civil rights stuff, and then, but they had a plan. That plan preceded Kennedy, and it went into effect quickly. Yeah, it was accelerated planned. by Kennedy becoming president. At, yeah, yes, it was accelerated by it, and it was honestly, it was that Nixon lost. Mm. So yeah. they were okay with Nixon, these cons- this conservative wing of the party. They were like, okay with Nixon. And Nixon ran a very pro-civil rights campaign, actually, in 60. It's very different from what he does in 68. 
But, and there was outreach to some African-Americans in the South in places where they could vote. And then that, they felt burned by that. They felt like African-Americans were switching to the Democratic Party. And like, if they kept trying to push down that route, they were going to just lose. And so there it's kind of a perfect storm of like Nixon losing so closely. Um, you know, after any party loses, there's a big, you know, mea culpa, like a sit down, try to figure out why. And it was kind of perfect timing for Nixon to lose for those that conservative wing of the party that had felt like it had been shut down to go, hey, maybe the problem is you don't have enough of us. Maybe you're too far to the left, right? Maybe you're trying to be a Democrat light and maybe you need to come this way. And so the, they had already decided on Goldwater and were planning to try to put him up in 64 um, as an antidote to Kennedy and to Nixon's loss. That's really the switching. It's like late 50s, early 60s. They're like, we're taking our party this way. One faction. The other faction's like, no, we're not, and fight, fights back, but they lose. Well, that leads really well into this next part where there's two major moments that stick out to me when I look back on the 1980 presidential election campaign for Ronald Reagan. The first is on August 3rd when Reagan gives his speech in Mississippi where he says, quote, I still believe the answer to any problem lies with the people. I believe in states' rights. And then just a few weeks later, he spoke at the National Convention of the Religious Roundtable, where he tells a room full of evangelicals, quote, I know that you can't endorse me, but I only brought that up because I want you to know that I endorse you and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you see? <laughs> yeah. Do you see any connective tissue oh, oh, yeah. between this between this dog whistle racism and this idea of states rights and this vocal endorsement of white evangelicals? I absolutely do. So this is the basis of my book, The Long Southern Strategy, is that we talk about the Southern strategy as this, you know, 1960s effort by Nixon, usually to really kind of pull some of these white Southerners who were super upset about integration and the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act to leave the Democratic Party and vote Republican. And Nixon plays those dog whistles and they go and boom, the South goes red. Except it's not what happens at all, right? So Goldwater in 1964 actually plays overt racism about the Civil Rights Act. His surrogates really do in the South. He picks up five Southern states and Arizona and loses the rest of the country. So Republicans are like, okay, maybe too hard. And so Nixon softens it. um, And he also picks up a few Southern states, but they're peripheral states and they actually have more electors in the Electoral College. And so it helps him become successful. But the entire South goes back to Jimmy Carter, except for Virginia in 1976, completely blue again. And so that's when Republicans go to the drawing board and are like, what are we doing? Like, can we still play this race card, right? Is that enough? Or do we need to add something to it, right? How else do we get these voters in the South? They realize that they've got to kind of tweak the racial approach. 
the angst over civil rights and integration has kind of faded a little bit, the urgency, the immediate backlash. And so Reagan really pushes this colorblindness denial of structural racism. We don't need government programs to do any of that. It's over. Let's move past race, right? White Southerners love that, made them feel better. Um, and then they also polled 40,000 American women Reagan's team and realized there were a whole lot of Southern white women who were two things, one against the ERA and two evangelicals. And so there was a deliberate effort. They, the Republican party drops the equal rights amendment from their platform in 1980. And they really start reaching out to evangelicals. That's why they get disappointed in Reagan, the evangelicals do, but they start saying the right things. So when when Reagan decides to announce early on and have a big speech in Mississippi at the Neosha County Fair and talk about states' rights, he's trying to say to the Southerners, I know y'all went back to Carter and Blue, but like I get you, I'm one of you, I'm gonna say all the right things. And you're going to know that I'm not going to, you know, impose more civil rights stuff on you. We're going to move past this. Right. And then he goes to the evangelicals and he basically says, I support what you're doing. And they felt very seen. That was a new kind. That was a bold, you know, statement. And also just, just to note, you know, who organized that event in Mississippi, who Ronald Reagan's Southern field director was for his national campaign in 1980 was a young Paul Manafort, FYI. It's a small group of strategists that have pushed this agenda. Yeah. Um, that's super fascinating too, because, you know, when you look at, it really goes back to this idea of what you were talking about, where, you know, when Ronald Reagan was governor of California, he put into place the most liberal abortion law of any state across the United States. And when we look at the platform from a, you know, a words on the page level, we see this idea of being, pro this is really the first pro-life candidate that they're pushing forward. This idea that like abortion is the be all end all priority of this whole race. And when you look at his, when you look at his speech in Dallas, the speech among evangelicals, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about abortion that's no. not that's not that's not the issue on the table it's one of the things that's the so one of the pieces of the puzzle that we miss one big picture one small big picture we forget that it's presidential campaigns are about an electoral map they're about a map and they sit down and they know what you're going to win and they know what you're not going to win and they know what's what's at stake and the south was at stake and so bending reagan to appeal to white southerners was just an absolute necessary tactic, right? We also forget that people express what we call like racial resentment, racial animosity. There are some of those people that are also evangelicals, but they're not all the same people. You know, it takes like the people who express kind of that anti-feminism that I talked about with the ERA, the people who express like racial animosity or resentment and the people who kind of are Christian nationalists there are some people who are all three. There are some that are two of three, but there's a whole lot that are one of three. And I know we lump it all together, but it actually is going to take a multi, 
you know, faceted multi-pronged appeal in order to get enough people to flip the region. And that's where the Republicans were really ahead of their times with data collection and realizing that, you know, it's, it wasn't, it's not a one prong kind of strategy. The abortion debate specifically comes out of the anti-ERA effort. So when the, when Phyllis Schlafly and the different, you know, women who want to be women out of the SBC, Lottie Beth Hobbs, you know, want to kill the ERA because they feel like feminists are insulting, you know, women who choose to stay home and are traditional gender roles. Um, you know, one of the ways in which feminists are demonized as is saying that they just, you know, all have abortions. And this really elevated the abortion debate and connected it with the kind of women who wanted to go to work and who, you know, wanted to pick a career and, you know, you know, technically the ERA is supposed to be about choice, but it felt like, you know, all the, all of its representatives were making one of those two choices. So it felt very, and it was easy to tell, particularly women in the South and religious women, that they were being criticized and insulted by, you know, the feminists. And so abortion and actually like lesbianism and anti, you know, um, or discrimination against homosexuality, it grows out of that spirit of shutting down the Equal Rights Amendment because those were two big criticisms. Um, so it makes sense to me that, you know, Reagan doesn't talk about abortion, but Phyllis Schlafly is at that Republican National Convention. She's at all of them and pushed very hard to get both the ERA drop from the platform and a pro-life position in it. They come out of the same well. In the late 20th century and into the early 21st century, we see a similar domination of Republican presidents. From 1981 to 2008, there's just one Democratic president, and he was a Southern Democrat with a Southern Democrat VP. What sort of policies did we see during this time, and how did white evangelical voters respond to these policies? Great question. So mostly during Reagan's administration, it was all rhetoric. So there wasn't a lot that actually changed kind of boots on the ground. There was some smoke and mirrors about, you know, what they would fund, but we weren't ever using taxpayer money to, you know, fund certain things domestically like abortions. Right. But it, it, it was kind of paying homage. Right. But the but the but the evangelicals get really frustrated with Reagan. That's when they want to run one of their own. Um, George H. W. Bush, um, you know, felt more unlike them as an Episcopalian. You know, they really tried to pull him to the right. He didn't. He really actually thought it was. Um, not necessarily good for the Republican Party, that it was becoming so litmus test by evangelicals, right? And so when Bill Clinton comes along and he's raised in the Southern Baptist Church, there was, it was just enough to kind of get some people to go, well, he's kind of, he gets us, he talks like us. I mean, that Democratic stronghold was so psychologically tight on white Southerners that it doesn't take a whole bunch of them flipping back to blue 
with the influx of African-American Democrats voting, it just took some. And Clinton was able to pull four Southern states and he actually pulls his numbers start to go up in 96 with evangelicals, believe it or not. They they really just like. Don't know what to make of the Republican Party under a George H.W. who doesn't say all the things they want and a Bob Dole who like didn't even want to meet with them. You know, they made him, you know, he just they were like, you have to call these folks and you have some of these leaders. They need to feel like they have a line to you. And he just like really thought that was so not OK um, or just it was giving them too much power. They were asking for things that somebody like Dole was like, that's unconstitutional. Like we have a separation of church and state. They weren't like asking for things he felt like he could do. Right. Um so I say that because we sometimes talk about it like it was the whole Republican Party. But there were a lot of leaders who were real skeptical of giving that particular interest group so much power and say, it's not until George W. Bush comes along, who is a true believer, again, evangelical, um, and starts to do compassionate conservatism, faith-based initiatives, and actually spent, get some money, you know, um, federal money and dollars towards different programs that churches and stuff were starting that you really start to see, uh, you know, a full-on red South from the top down to the bottom. Also, I would say one part you specifically asked like policies. One of the few things that Republicans did do is they just kind of they helped with that. The tax code stuff for religious entities, you know, it was like, well, we won't take your you know, we won't tax your money, which is, you know. Difficult sometimes as they were becoming a big network in things that were somewhat secular. Right. Or, you know, that that. So it was it was it wasn't so much as doing for them as rhetoric for them and then maybe some tax code kind of stuff that just gate like was hands off. Right. Which arguably, I mean, is the whole ball game for guys like Oral Roberts, Bob Jones and Jerry Falwell. That was really the whole reason that they got right. into this game That's was, was because it's like being able to grow as a corporate, you know, entity. A hundred percent. Your true believers that wanted you know, Christianity asserted or prayers back in school or vouchers for private religious schools or faith-based initiatives, you know, they wanted more than that. That's what people like Bob Dole and George H.W. Bush were worried about. Yeah. And were scared that they would be pushed into a place that was really not constitutional. But then again, what do evangelicals do in response to that? They start pushing about the courts because who is going to determine what's constitutional? The courts. So this becomes a real big effort, Justice Sunday, to preach about the Supreme Court and to educate voters about we're not going to get more than this unless the interpretation of the Constitution changes. Therefore, the courts are everything. 
When we look at the 2008 election, you note that Senator John McCain had a distaste for pandering to religious voters, which apparently other folks did as well. Bob Dole is a good example of that. In 2012, Mitt Romney, who was a devout Mormon, spoke at Liberty University's commencement, but didn't do enough to defeat a popular and incumbent, Barack Obama. Following their defeat in 2012, the GOP launched a quote-unquote post-mortem report to understand what went wrong and how to move the party by the next presidential election. Can you talk about that post-mortem, post-mortem report a little bit and, and, and whether or not it worked? Well, it clearly, well, worked depending. Yeah. Um, so after, after McCain's loss and then Romney's loss, and honestly it was really after Romney's loss Because usually we have two, I mean, we rarely have three cycles of the same party. So there was part of the Barack Obama kind of thing that was somewhat as, as unexpected as it was. It was also a bit like a pattern, but to not be able to defeat him with somebody that was such a senior statesman like Romney or was so moderate, so middle, you know, um, they started to worry about demographic changes. Also, Obama wins three Southern states back, um, and that was worrisome. He didn't need them to win, but he won three Southern states back. And they really need that whole block to be successful. And so the postmortem was to talk about how do you do you go the way of African-American voters are so almost universally Democrat. Latino voters were pretty split. And there were Republicans who were really pushing amnesty program and immigration reform because they needed to build, especially along religious lines, a, you know, rapport and like loyalty and support among Latinos. Okay. Especially Catholic Latinos, religious, you know, Latinx voters. And, but after 2012 and kind of Obama, the changes Obama kind of made to the party gave it this new face, new generation, right? There was a debate on maybe the best thing to do is just double down on white voters. How do we motivate white voters? And so the idea that there was, you know, the 2015 report about the census saying, you know, when whites would be in the minority, hit people hard, and kind of exploiting that. And then you've had a Black president, which for a lot of people in the South was completely shocking that that was possible. And it woke up this, like, racial backlash. And so when they're digging deep, it's like, do we go the way of trying to coalition build with Latinx voters? Or do we try to get you know, white voters who don't vote empowered to show up in an us versus them kind of way. Yeah. I wonder if there's this element too of, it's easy to, to have this conversation of, you know, I don't, I don't see color. I don't see race. I'm colorblind. Mm -hmm. It's easy to have that conversation when all you ever see is white folks. But when you have a black president, I wonder if there's an element of, I wonder if there's an element of, well, it's hard to be colorblind when our president isn't white anymore. Right. It's absolutely true. Obama wasn't, as hard as it is for some people to believe, Obama was an alarm. I mean, it's one of the reasons 
I mean, there were people who just absolutely thought, well, John McCain, war hero, POW, senior statesman, like there's no way we have a black president. They don't live in a world in which that's, they've ever seen anything like that. And they were really, you know, some were even complacent. And then boom, right? That hits and we saw spikes in racial resentment. We saw old fashioned racism measures come back in political science. We saw, you know, um, you know, an acceleration in the numbers of hate groups formed and stuff online. And for all of that extreme that's bubbling up, think about what that means for then the people just going, yeah, I don't really like him. I'm not yeah. comfortable with him yeah. because this, I'm not saying all, all these people woke up and were this, it's just, on the extreme, if the extreme is going up, you have to know then that the middle kind of moderates going, I just don't like him. I just don't trust him. I don't feel comfortable with them. And they can't even necessarily pinpoint an exact kind of reason, but it was a signal moment. It was like for some people, a whoa. And, and, and I can't prove this. It's just a theory. But a lot of times what's underneath that racial resentment is, and I'm not saying people know this or can articulate it, it's just psychologically, it was true during Reconstruction, Black leadership, right, is that, you know, when you come from a culture that has discriminated against, and even in its past, severely oppressed, even enslaved African-Americans, um, there's there's kind of a fear that African-Americans in power will then do the same thing to whites. Um, it's not something anybody says. It's not something I even think people know in their hearts. But when you think about like, what's the fear? Like, what's really the fear? Why does it matter, right? And it's this idea that Obama's going to come take your guns. Obama's going to, you know, this is what the, the world will downfall, right? Because the world you've lived in is built in a way that oppressed, right, African-Americans. And so you think the natural thing that's going to happen is that African-Americans in power are going to oppress, you know, whites, right? Or, and, and that's played into, or that someone who's secular, right, in an office or non-religious is going to oppress Christianity, right? It's that, and that's that, you know, that's, I'm not saying it to like criticize or even dismiss. It's a very natural fear. It's that women, right? Why, why, were, why were men, you know, men that were opposed to the ERA, it's, oh, well, women going into the workplace, like, are they going to then somehow make me feel uncomfortable the way women in the workplace often felt uncomfortable? And for the anti-feminist women, white women who are going, you know, are they going to judge me the way I judged women that had to work? You know, it, it's it, that that's a very kind of natural, deeper than the Republican Party's played on that, you know, at a, at a really deep place. And it's effective, you know, it's effective to the, the, the criticism component or the not revenge components too much, but the world flipped upside down. If you've been the judger, right, you've been 
the oppress or a part of the group that oppresses or benefits from the oppression, or you've judged women that had to work, right? Lower income women, or you've, you know, judged people who were not of a religious faith, right? Then you just know that they must do the same thing if they're in control of you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, a, a really insightful way of looking at that. And it's, it's a, it's helpful to articulate too, because it's easy for, it's easy to think, um, well, the reason that I do the thing, I know my motivations and if the tables were turned, there's no doubt that they have the same motivations as me. Um, and no, it may not be the case. I mean, one of the things we learned during reconstruction is that black leadership, it actually opened public schools, you know, for everyone. Yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't a binge. It didn't then purge white people out of society, make them move out of their home. It didn't do any of that. Right. Yeah. But that was the fear of what it would be. Right. Yeah. And then it was, you know, kind of, in fact, a lot of the punishment was laid down by white Republicans who were, you know, rightly upset about secession and the loss of life, right? Um, it wasn't from the black leadership that came after the fact, but that's that that was the, you know, that was the fear then and why they locked down dominance so hard after. And I still think it's very prevalent in that's why when people when people are like, oh, people voting against their economic self-interest, that's not that's easy for people on the outside looking at them and judging them to say they don't think it's in their self-interest. They they do think it's in their self-interest to vote the way they're voting. It's rational to them. It's just a different it's based on different variables. Looking at the lineup of presidential candidates for the Republican Party in 2016, there were several folks who at first glance would have been a better fit for a quote unquote values voter, white evangelical base. Early on, it may have been someone like Mike Huckabee or Jeb Bush, and even people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio had some evangelical bona fides. Uh, In a crowded field with at least 17 candidates, why did Donald Trump rise to the top? I'm so glad you asked that because I gave a series of talks called the inevitability of Donald Trump during that primary season. And people thought it was crazy. Not that he would win the general, that he was going to win the primary. Um, And it's because when you look at, when you look at the Southern states and where they all moved their primaries, which the bulk of them, you know, they called it the SEC primary, Super (laughs) Tuesday, right? They moved them up. They also are awarded, the Republican Party awards bonus delegates to the states based on how loyal, how much the states go Republican in a general, go red in a general. So the Southern states have high numbers of bonus delegates in addition to that. Some of them, most of them are winner take all or winner take most um, of the votes. And so it's disproportionately if you do well in the South. Not only do you get more delegates to the Republican National Convention, but you get momentum because it's all up front, right? We tend to focus so much on Iowa, New Hampshire, but South Carolina is way more delegates, you know, and then boom, 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 the, you know, Super Tuesday chock full of Southern states, you know, makes it lean that way. So then as a political scientist, if I'm looking and I'm going, I know it takes a combination of the Christian nationalism and playing towards that racial resentment 
and playing towards traditional gender roles or an anti-feminism, particularly coming after an African-American president and there being a, a female front runner on the Democratic side. You're going to have to hit all three of those things. And you don't have to be those things. That's our false, you know, understanding that you have to, that, that there's an authenticity test. You have to perform those things. And so when I looked at the field and I thought Kasich is probably, you know, appeals most to, you know, traditionally just social conservative religious voters, but he wouldn't attack, he wouldn't attack on race. Um, I look at Rubio and Cruz and I, their last names are Rubio and Cruz. And when you've galvan, when you've decided to double down on white grievance, you know, it's not that it's going to hit everybody. There's a lot of people that voted for, particularly Cruz in Arkansas, you know, a lot. Um, but it's going to shave off just enough. And I look at Ben Carson, right? African-American, cauliflowering, female, right? So you start to go, who is going to get the Christian nationalists, those expressing racial resentment and kind of the anti-feminist? And that combo is going to get you about 30% in the Southern states. And in a crowded field, that's enough. There's nowhere in the South that Trump even topped 40% in those primaries. He gets in the 30s. But it's enough with the bonus delegates and the winner take most and all of that by playing those three things, those three cards, right? And playing them in a moment in which you're coming after a black president and there's a potential female, very considered feminist, you know, candidate. So it feels urgent, right? Um, to, to win the nomination. And he won every state in the South, except for Texas, which went to Cruz. Every single one Trump did. And people thought I was nuts. Do you think he would have won if the, if there would have been less candidates? Do you think if there had only been two or three? The Republican party had gotten, serious about, and this is the failure of parties. I mean, it truly is. I mean, I mean, by failure, I say failure of the traditional mode of parties. I mean, parties, political parties were created. One of their main purposes was to curb ambition, was to go, it's your turn. Let's get behind, or you too, fight it out, right? And so failure of their old definition, now it's more democratic, it's more open. It's like, you don't have to be establishment, you know? And that's, so that's not necessarily a failure. It just creates a different role for the party. Um, In the old days, if all those other candidates had gotten together and maybe gotten behind one or two, yes, he could have been defeated. Yep, or maybe one. So it wasn't impossible. It's just that that takes... A, a lot of people kind of getting together going, what's best for the party? Who do we put up? That that puts country over part, you know, over or party over your own ambition. It's just a really hard thing to do. Um, and a lot of people run not really thinking they're going to win, but it's going to give them some prominence nationally for four years later eight years later or for a cabinet position. And that's just, you know, that's absolutely fine, but it's dangerous too. If you've got someone who has a celebrity name funding and is hitting and 
is hitting those three things on the far right end of the party. Um, because the far right end of the party gets you 30% or a little bit more in the South when they're early in the primary season with a lot of bonus delegates. And it creates a momentum that's hard to catch. Yeah. It's, I mean, when you lay it out like that, it's, of course, <laughs> but yeah, and it's, and it, and it's, all of it's, that it's like, a, it's like a mind over matter thing. It is. And all that happened is the Southern strategy, because the Southern strategy so targeted those white voters, it rebranded the Republican party kind of in this Southern white image. And it ended up as it did that. And those States went red, they got more and more bonus delegates. And so it, and it kind of, it kind of, you know, it southernized the party and gave it way more power and prominence when it was intended to just kind of break up that democratic, like get a couple of them to be, you know, purple or competitive. Right. So we have more ad paths. Um, they're, they're effectively doubling down over it for 40 years. Um, is, you know, has created, you know, that it is smarter in a primary to run to the far right. Um, and that's, that's a, that's something the party needs to, you know, think about because just changing the primary calendar, just changing the bonus delegates or putting some restrictions in for the primary calendar. I know they can't tell States what to do, but they can penalize States and, you know, changing their bonus delegate form and stuff. They, um, you know, someone that ran to the far right would not have the power within the party um, or the momentum in the primary season. That's one, that's one thing that could be changed. When we look at, when we look at the other candidates who were running in that primary, did we see any sort of uh, dog whistle racism like we saw with Nixon and with Reagan? Um, and obviously, you know, the the gap was pretty wide between, Donald Trump's bullhorn and and perhaps some dog whistles, but did we see any examples of that, that people were trying to reach those voters that Trump tended to pick up in that primary season? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Cruz for sure. I mean, Cruz very much plays a, um, you know, Christians are being targeted and I'm not just a Christian evangelical, but I'm a Christian evangelical attorney who's argued at the Supreme Court you know, and the court, the court, the court. And like, this is a legal fight, you know, for kind of a Christian majority kind of, you know, tone and Christian, I mean, Christianity is still the major religion in America. still the majority religion in America, you know, but portraying it as it's on its last breaths. Right. Um, And that people are judged for it, snubbed for it, you know, um, that kind of grievance, 100% there. I think that Cruz definitely did something. And maybe he feels that. I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily an act. Might very much feel that way. Um, Kasich does a little bit more of the, it's social gospel plus pro-life. But the pro-life thing is also a, can be a dog whistle, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah. You know, Um because it is, it's the thing that in a complicated political world has become the thing that if you, just like if you say you're a fun, you have fundamentalist interpretation of the Bible, you're like, 
Yep. Whatever the Bible says, whatever it's like, it's an armor. It's like a text that you can go. This is, and you don't have to assess for yourself. Pro-life's become like, I say I'm pro-life. And so I vote for the pro-life candidate and that's it. I don't have to think about any of the other complexities. You know, it's become a brand, a brand with a litmus test. Um, and so is that a dog whistle? I don't, I, maybe dog whistle is too strong of a word. It's, but it's been, it's become a, a cue. Yeah, certainly a head nod. <laughs> a branding cue that once people know who's the pro-life candidate, or who's the most pro-life candidate, then they don't have to deal with what's their views on foreign policy, like all of that other stuff. Um, and how, and that's because it's seen, it's a simplistic um, way to sort all of politics down into one thing that people can take a position on. Yeah, it's either yes, you are pro-life or no, you aren't pro-life. You're either for it or you're against it. I mean, it's Wallace and segregation. It's the same language, the absolutism. Either for it or you're against it, period. And that's very, you know, people get, that is an old school, you know, rhetorical technique in Southern culture about everything is one or the other. It's black and white. It's like, there's no gray. There's no slippery slope. You don't have a little bit of integration. You don't have a little bit of freedom under slave. I mean, you just, because when you're trying to hold together that power dynamic, you know, you can't, the slippery slope, it actually is a slippery slope. Yeah. You know, you let people have a little bit of rights and they want all the rights. Um, and so they, uh, that rhetorical technique is, you know, very familiar, very understandable, and it's kind of hold the line, you know, you're the for it or you're against it. And for, there has been a shift I don't want it to make it sound like it's all just like stupid or like, you know, simplistic. There has been a shift among pro-life advocates to push on courts. Like before it was just push on policy. And now they're like, okay, until the court overturned, like every single bit of this effort just becomes unconstitutional. So it was a real campaign to educate the public on the courts, who makes the nominations, who are the justices and, you know, evangelicals actually, when we did some polling on, you know, a measure of political sophistication, which is knowledge about, you know, the federal government, like they were really high, you know, and people were like, oh, but they have been informed. And, the you know, pulpits become kind of a political, political lectern and, um, the church a classroom where people have been educated about the court and how it works and who nominates and who are the best justices and who we're we looking for and all of that in a way that the mass public, um, you know, has not been having for 20 years. Yeah. Does that make any sense? No. Yeah. Well, I mean, because, because white evangelicals are being told that the only way that Roe versus Wade is going to get overturned is at the Supreme Court level. Mm -hmm. And as long as I vote for a Republican who is pro-life, the Republican is who appoints Supreme Court justices. And we saw that, you know, we saw that in 2016 when, for some people, arguably one of the main reasons to vote against Barack Obama was because there was an open seat on the court. And- The Senate refused to hear a, 
a case for replacing that seat. Whereas in 2020, when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away within a week, <laughs> that that seat is replaced in the same situation. So yeah, there's no, I mean, they're like we we they have there. Yes, there's hypocrisy in what Republican leadership has done, but there's not hypocrisy in their motives, which is power. Right. Right. right? It's like right. Ab- they're absolutely going to change the rules if it benefits them. And anytime we think they're not or that the hypocrisy is going to make them look bad. It's not. Well, it wasn't even. Yeah, it, it wasn't even really a, a, a way of me saying hypocrisy. It was me a way of saying that, like, this is what people know is the ultimate goal. Is the ultimate and goal. Whatever and it takes say, to make that happen. They I will, will say, do. too, that, you know, when you said that so many people in 2016, it was like there's an open seat on the court. That's why we have to vote for Trump. You know, I, I believe, I hear that. I hear that. Um, but digging deeper than that, They've been made to feel like that is the only end-all, be-all issue, right, beforehand. So that's also a very easy and convenient way. You know, that that's how it's become a dog whistle, because we also see that Trump's support went up in 2020. And when we do models predicting Trump's white vote, you know, people who express above average levels of racial resentment, Christian nationalism, and what we measure as modern sexism, which is like a distrust of working women, a dislike of working women, um, that accounts for 95% of Trump's white vote, being one of those three. Some people are two of three, some are three of three, but being one of those three, the only other 5% that we can find anything that's like common is an above above average income. There could be a few there that it's about tax break, but it's really hitting one of, hitting that combo, you know, that motivated is, white voters. Um, I think there was an effort in 2020 to, you know, chip away a little bit at African-American voters and try to pick some, maybe some Latino voters to put with that combo to maybe try to, you know, put them over the top, you know, again, without a, you know, a Supreme Court nominee, because I wondered, I remember thinking, why are they putting why why wouldn't you hold the Amy Comey Barrett, you know, hearings until after where you hold it out as a if he loses, we don't get her. Right. Um, but. It's they wanted the kind of reward, vote, the ability in the middle of coronavirus to go. He delivered. Um, Trump delivered for you because he had not on covid. People were like, this is getting worse and worse and worse, you know. Um, and so it was an effort to combat that, that speaks very highly, um, when it's all simple, you know, when it's all deduced down to that. And yet, honestly, Trump had no control over RBG, you know, passing away or anything, but it depends all on, and if you don't have a Republican Senate, you don't get that nominee. I mean, so it's, it's a lot of eggs to put in one basket. Um, and it, It'll be interesting to see if it actually gets overturned because it didn't went five four, right? Like they thought. Will it with six three? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I have two more questions for you. Sure. Um, uh, first one, and and maybe we answered this, but we can kind of articulate it in a in 
a more structured way. Why would socially conservative white evangelical voters support Trump? Okay, it's a great question. Um, you know, people ask the same thing about why they would support a Mormon in Romney, and we saw them support, you know, Romney in super high, crazy high levels. And this is that shift comes in 88. So in 88, when, you know, conservatives are frustrated with Ronald Reagan for it all being lip service, because I mean, they had, they had liked Carter. And then Carter, they were like, you're not one of us. You may have grown up as one of us, but you're not one. And so they go for Reagan and then it's lip service. Um, And they're frustrated. They decided to run their own candidate in Robertson. And then they realize they don't, they're not that big. They have strength numbers, but they're not that big to combat a political party. So then they're going to have to pick one of the two. And, um, And that moment kind of becomes when the litmus test of authenticity is kind of thrown out the window. It's not that they wouldn't prefer that, but if someone will do the things on their list and say the things they want to say, their own personal history um, can easily be dismissed as, you know, God uses all kinds of folks. But, but, and I mean, I, and I don't, I'm not saying that critically of evangelicals because, you know, that's how all political interest groups operate. It's just that the media goes, it's so hypocritical. And I'm like, you're not looking at it strategically. They don't, it's not one man in the White House, it is what the actions do you know, long-term there, it's more sophisticated politically by the leadership than people want to admit. Also, and I haven't mentioned this, but all of that kind of comes about from the Southern Baptist Convention going fundamentalist starting in 79. So there was an effort by, there was actually two men, you know, um, Paul Pressler, Paige Patterson, famous, you know, evangelicals, who hatched a plot to, at the 1979 Southern Baptist Convention, um, put get a fundamentalist elected as president. And for anybody that knows anything about the SBC, you do not campaign. I mean, members that attend are kind of selected by their church body, just kind of called to service. Um, you, it, you know, people are supposed to kind of investigate in their own hearts and mind. nobody gives speeches or whatever. But they really ran a campaign. You know, I'm talking like walkie talkies from balconies and like to really get, you know, a fundamentalist elected. And then the fundamentalist SBC president then appoints people to what's called the committee on committees, which people slowly rotate off of. And then the committee on committees appoints people to all the other committees. Right. So if you get a couple of cycles of a hardcore fundamentalist biblical literalist as president of SBC, you can slowly put fundamentalists on all the committees, right? And over the course of one decade, that's what they do. And moderates are really purged from the denomination. You either get on board with this belief system and biblical literalism and kind of this political partnership of a party, or you can go. 
And it's when a lot of people leave the SBC um, and felt devastated because Baptist was supposed to be personal relationship, not all this high church hierarchy, not all this. I mean, that was the real pull and strength of kind of the Baptist faith message compared to Catholic and evangelical and all this. And so the SBC becoming fundamentalist and having and growing as an organizational unit and becoming politically engaged. If it had been politically engaged as moderate Baptists, it doesn't look the same. Politically engaged as fundamentalists, you know, um, really pulled things to the right too. So it's, it's just important to, you know, remember that, like I said, that those folks, it was their pull on the Republican Party and the Republican Party outreached to them. It was, it was a lot of energy going both ways. Yeah. What can the election and presidency of Donald Trump tell us about the future of the Republican Party? Uh, well, you know. Well, what if we look at like the the 2018 midterm? How did that, how, did his, how did his election and presidency affect Oh, absolutely. That? So the 2018 midterms showed you know, particularly among women, the, you know, folks asserting and organizing their values, many of whom made a big assumptions that Hillary Clinton would win. Understandable assumptions, actually, based on numbers, polling, a million other factors. But, um, and then they realized, can't take this for granted, right? Um, yes, yeah, someone like this can win. Someone with... By like this, I mean openly hostile towards, you know, women and openly, you know, racist remarks and no experience in the office, little foreign policy knowledge, all of that. Um, people, I then realized, gosh, it really can. You really, you think that can never happen. You really got to invest in kind of your vote and get organized. However, 2018, you'd look at the victories and they are above the Mason-Dixon line. You know, Stacey Abrams, Beto, Andrew Gillum, you know, a lot of state, you know, U.S. US House races, a great, can amazing candidates, people lost because it's going to take longer than that. It, you know, the Republican takeover of the South. I mean, one thing Republicans did at the state level is they built an infrastructure you ask the governor of Arkansas now, Asa Hutchinson, what it was like to be a Republican in Arkansas in the 80s, and it was miserable. They lost everything. They slowly built, they slowly built county parties, you know, state convention system, network of people. It does, no matter how talented a candidate is, if there's no infrastructure for get out the vote and for, you know, messaging, you, it doesn't matter. Right. It's not enough. Big a mil, millions of dollars coming in from out of the state and a super talented campaign is not enough. It's it's a ground game. And Democrats are slowly. Trying to rebuild that in the South, they had it for so long and they were complacent about it. And the Republicans kind of slowly came in and built theirs. And when they took over, Democrats are going, oh, my gosh, they have a rebuilding to do. In places like Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, that's been going on for like 10 to 12 years. And you can see the results of that, right? 
In other states, it's more recent. It's been about six years in Texas. There's some other places getting started in the last, since 2016, right? In the last couple of cycles. And it'll take, if people are serious about it and don't get complacent just because, you know, the Democrat won in 2020, right? Um, and invest in it. They can They can make a lot of progress in making parts of Red state's competitive, at least, if not the whole state, purple and competitive. And, you know, which is what, and the, which is what I'd like to see because two-party competition is what's healthiest, especially for state and local politics. It becomes a contest of ideas. Wasn't good for the South when it was all Democrat. Wasn't. It was a contest of idea. It was personality politics. Well, and at that, it's not, at that stage, it's... it's it's really just a primary election, right? When it you is. look at when you look at like Georgia where Marjorie Taylor Greene came out of, right? Yeah, there was exactly. no real contest in the general. Correct. It was really who can get the furthest to the right. And that's not and healthy. It's, it's a politics of entertainment. They don't talk about policies and reform. I mean, this this is how you ended up with Faubuses and hmm. you know, Bilbo's and you know, all of these crazy characters in Southern politics is because it was not a real contest of ideas. Everyone agreed on this is what has to happen. And now we'll just duke it out with factions and personality politics and who's supporter or grift and all of this. Um, it's really unhealthy for democracy. And there's no oversight from another party. I mean, I would like a multi-party system personally, but, you know, it's, it's, all of the results we see of when a state is controlled by one party for the long term, you know, those are not unique to the South. That's what happens when you have a one party system. It's just the South's been under that Democrat and then Republican for a really long time. And it, it hurts the region. Yeah. Do you think Donald Trump runs for president in 2024? I, I, I don't see why not. I mean, I'd be surprised. I mean, if it were me and I was being strategic if he's running, then any prosecution of him becomes, you know, political retribution and, you know, dismissed as somehow, you know, vengeful, you know, toward him or perhaps persuasive in that way. Um, and I just think ego wise. I don't know why he wouldn't. Now, how serious of a campaign that would be, you know, and without Twitter and access to those things, you know, will it just be kind of all talk or maybe a few rallies here and there, which is not a campaign, you know. You got to have a lot of staff and a lot of work, you know, that goes into a, a real campaign um, of some sort. I don't see, I don't see why he wouldn't. And I, and I think people are foolish if they think it's, I mean, I know he will be much older, but I think they're really with barring real prosecution and conviction for many things or health issues. People are foolish if they think he can't. Well, and it's almost the, the two impeachments the primary, are almost a, at least. right. Well, the two impeachments are almost a badge of honor for, a group of people who love to be persecuted and mm -hmm. love to lay on the laurels of look at how much I'm being persecuted for what I believe and what I stand for. I mean, that's, that's right. white Christianity in America. <laughs> and, but here's the key. 
it isn't it isn't as big of a portion of the electorate as we think. Sure. But it's but the Republican primary system is set up to give that exact population a lot of weight, much more weight than its size. That's the part that I think people kind of who aren't in it in the weeds, like some of us don't realize, you know, is is just how all of those little rules and stuff have institutionalized, you know, the momentum a candidate like that can get. And they actually have the ability to fix that and solve that problem. And so we'll see. You see know, if they're motivated they do, to, and, to adjust that. <laughs> I don't, I just, and I also just, I have no, and I would say this about both parties. Well, more, even more so about Republicans. I don't have any faith in that the party system as being able to curb ambition. I do not see them as getting on the same page behind one other candidate. I, I think Democrats... I think they almost did the impossible this cycle when they finally all, you know, jumped on Biden's bandwagon. And they did a really remarkable job at that. And I think it was only because the threat of Trump and coronavirus was so extreme. It's a really hard thing to do to convince people not to battle it out longer and farther. And I remember seeing that and thinking that's their best shot of winning. It really is. But are they even going to be able to do that? And they did. They did. They showed remarkable unity, which Democrat Party is not good at, actually. Um, this And it, it will take that from the Democratic Party, too. Um, but the Republican Party will have to do a bunch of advanced planning and get on, you know, party over self to defeat him in 2024 if something else doesn't take him out of the running before. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, this line in, in national politics, right. That the Democrats fall in love and Republicans fall in line. And so true. Yeah. It's also hard to be the party that pushes for diversity and pluralism and then all come to a common, you know, a least common denominator ground. It, it, it's actually in or to be the party pushing kind of absolutism us versus them. I mean, it is part of the democratic nature that they want to hear all sides and represent all groups and all of this. And then that is very difficult to then corral. Um, and I hope that's one lesson from 20 from the Trump era for Democrats is that in the end, you know, you have, no matter how disappointed you are in whoever a nominee is, you know, like I look at, I think about Bernie supporters and, you know, they should be really proud of moving the party on some serious issues. They really did. And they should stay engaged and involved because it's not about Bernie. It's not about Elizabeth Warren. It's not about, you know, Clinton. It's not about Biden. It's not like no one person's going to, going to, you know, keep kind of progressive politics in play if that's your thing, right? And if that's what you see and go forward, you know, doing. And this cycle, as opposed to 2016, I think dem those Democratic candidates did a good job of backing out and throwing their support and trying to do it with some kind of energy and 
real authenticity. And they're going to have to continue to do that because it's a very divided country. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I didn't say, and I'll just tell you real quick, because it was where I was going and lost train of thought, yeah. is that fundamentalist takeover that's talking about the SBC. One of the first things that happens after that is they fire their entire lobbying group, which the lobbying initiative of the SBC had been prior to that to protect um, the free exercise of religion, right? It was like the whole purpose was like, is there any place like where Baptists are like not getting to, you know, free exercise their religion? Are they being made to work on a Sunday? Are they being made to work on a Wednesday night and they want to go to church? And they fire it on. It becomes advancing, you know, Christian evangelical beliefs, establishing them as part of government, you know, laws, rules, whatever. It really switches hand from a defensive lobbying effort to an offensive lobbying effort. And that's a really big deal because no matter what, how much we think here that we influence what's going on, those people on the ground in D.C. that are the voices of the organization when they switch from, from, from defense to offense, it's a big deal, a really big piece of the puzzle. So, you know, I mean, there's people I'm sure that are experts on that, but it's, it's a noticeable shift in from the Washington end of things and how policy actually gets made. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good luck with this. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're so welcome. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for checking out the Deluxe Edition. Our theme song is Apophenia by Ross Christopher. Some might say I saved the best for last. The final interview will be with professor, historian, and author of the New York Times bestseller, Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Kobes-Dumais. I'll see you then.